0: From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. My guest is Jonathan Eich. He's the author of several books, including Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig, Opening Day, The Story of Jackie Robinson's First Season, Get Capone, The Secret Plot That Captured America's Most Wanted Gangster, The Birth of the Pill, how four Crusaders reinvented sex and launched a revolution, and the highly acclaimed Ali a Life, his new book is called King: a Life, and it is the definitive biography of dr Martin luther King jr. Jonathan Iig welcome to from the bookshelf thank you it's good to talk to you your your last two books have been about two great african American icons Ali and king uh, what 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 do their life stories say about the America that we live in now?
1: I guess they both say that we um, are still struggling to overcome our history of racism, our history of slavery and segregation, and that um, these two heroes, these two figures who I chose to write about, um, forced us to confront that racism in ways that, that few have in our history and really pushed us to try to do better, and um, you know, they didn't push us as far as we as we could go, but they pushed us as far as they could at the time. And uh, I guess the reason that I wanted to write about them is that we are still grappling with so many of
0: the issues that they raised. Well, they're both very divisive characters, and we live in a very divided country now. But the divisions seem very different. In, in King, for instance, uh, it doesn't fall down party lines as to what side people uh, take. Uh, So it's it's kind of interesting. Divisions are are, are quite different now.
1: Yeah. You know, um, King and Ali were both unpopular across all all parties at different times in their lives. And I think, um, you know, we, we certainly... We're living in divided times in the '60s. Uh, in some ways, we're living in more divided times now. But certainly, politically, we're more divided. You know, King and many Black Southerners were were open to exploring the advantages of Republican Democratic candidates at the time. That wasn't so cemented. Um, you know, it was it it began to change, of course, when John Kennedy won election. Um, but but um, e- even after that, you know, King was open to talking to and learning from. Republicans and Democrats alike. Um, and, you know, Republicans and Democrats alike um, disdained King and, and um, and uh, you know, criticized him, especially in the later years of his career when he began speaking out against the Vietnam War. So um, it's interesting to see. Certainly, um, we were brutally, bitterly, violently divided in the 1960s, um, and, and we're still divided just in different ways today.
0: Uh, it seems like Ali and King and... And Jackie Robinson as well. You, you've written about, uh, it's a very diverse group of things you've written about, but there are, I guess there are connections to them all, um, sports, civil rights, culture, all those things. Um, Rebellion uh, too. I think I've, I'm, I'm drawn yeah, to rebels. Rebels. Uh, Ali King and Jackie Robinson, they all seem to share the experience of being drawn into a cause somewhat unwillingly. Would you say that's true?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, reluctantly and, 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 um, hesitatingly and sometimes accidentally, which is what part, part of what makes their story so compelling because we can imagine how it might have happened to us that way or how the forces might have, um, put someone else in that situation. And what makes people heroic, I think, is their decision to step up when that moment arises because they didn't have to. Um, you know, Muhammad Ali could have stuck to boxing. Um, and uh, Martin Luther King could have allowed Ralph Abernathy to take the leadership of the, of the Montgomery bus boycotts. Um, He was, you know, new in town, just getting used to his church, had a infant at home, uh, his first child. um, And he really wasn't looking for uh, this job. He wasn't looking to do anything besides, you know, get used to his church in Montgomery. So that's to me what makes these characters so compelling is that moment when they're facing a choice, you know, do I go for this? Do I accept this challenge? Uh, and that's where you know heroes come from. I think it's in that moment.
0: Well, so uh, I think in in the book you you, if I'm not mistaken, you you spent some time with the year 1955, as that was being the year in which King is transformed from being a a person to being uh, something more. I guess.
1: Yeah, that's really the key moment that he steps up, and it's the moment that his life changes. And it happens really in in one night, actually, December fifth, nineteen fifty five, when he's asked to give the the address in front of the church of uh, the Bat- the Holt Street Baptist Church, where thousands of people have gathered, awaiting word on what they're going to do. Are they going to boycott the buses the next day, and if so? you know what how, how are they going to stay connected how are they going to stay unified how long are they going to stay off the buses and king is is again not expecting to be put in a position of leadership and he's just asked to really be their spokesman but he finds his voice that night he 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 finds all of the elements that will make him a great leader for the next 12 13 years because he combines the bible with the call of the Constitution, he finds this message that really speaks to working people about their, their dignity and about their strength and, and their, and, and their potential to change America. And he finds a message that really resonates beyond the uh, Black community of Montgomery that forces white people in the North and members of the media to pay attention and to say, wait a second. He's calling on the arguments of the Constitution and the Bible. Uh, that's pretty hard to argue with. And it, he's he's able to sort of capture the attention of the nation and and make people start to think about how this might be applied more broadly. And that's the moment that he really becomes a leader.
0: There's a certain show business quality to it as well. Absolutely, he's a star. He's, he's
1: and this is a, a good example because if you know Ralph, Ralph Abernathy was brilliant, uh, courageous, but he might not have had that same magnetism. King is is just such a beautiful speaker. He's so well-educated. He's citing, you know, he's, he's, he's referencing, you know, philosophers as well as, um, you know, uh, gospel songs. He's really just, you know, a force of nature. And it's almost impossible not to be drawn in when you hear him speak.
0: Well, um, would you say that he was uh, uh, highly intelligent, that, that he was able to keep all of these things in his head uh, at once?
1: yeah he's absolutely a, a brilliant speaker a brilliant communicator and a pretty uh, adept philosopher and theologian too um you know he he had some struggles academically he skipped a few grades in school as a, as a young child and and that i think set him back and he was never a confident writer he plagiarized quite a bit but his ability to, to synthesize ideas and to communicate them and to inspire others to not just understand, but to want to follow, uh, I think he's off the charts as a genius in that way.
0: Uh, do you think uh, you did talk about his plagiarism a couple of times in the book, which I think is kind of interesting, since I think today it is the most common method that students use in writing their term papers, but, <laughs> um, soon to be replaced by AI or whatever, Right, but um, Uh, do you think that, um, you know, later in life, he did some things that were questionable as well when he knew that he was being watched. Um, Is that a, would you say that's a flaw in his personality or what accounts for that um, blindness of? Mm, It's a great uh, question because, you know, his plagiarism, he he
1: stole from the most obvious places that he could possibly steal from, as if suggesting that, he didn't care if he got caught. He really wasn't concerned at all if he thought this was – maybe he thought there was nothing wrong with it or that it wasn't such a big deal. Because you know, in high school, he plagiarized a speech um, for a contest, and he stole it from a book in the library called Great Speeches for High School Students. Right? <laughs> um, that's not even trying to avoid detection. And then in um, college at Boston University going for his doctorate degree, he plagiarized egregiously from a doctoral dissertation that had been written – just a few years earlier for the same advisor for his very same advisor. (laughs) So again, it's, it's either really stupid and he's not a stupid man, right? Or it's really blase that he just doesn't care. He doesn't think it's a big deal to get caught. And then of course, as you referenced, he's cheating on his wife, knowing that the FBI is recording his phone calls, knowing that the FBI is probably wiretapping his hotel. I mean, uh, bugging his hotel rooms. And at a certain point, he just doesn't care. And, and that's, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to understand. Uh, But there it is. Um, And I asked some of his friends, uh, you know, about that. And they said, he just couldn't, he couldn't stop. He, he, he did what he felt he needed to do. Um, Some of it was, they thought was, was therapy, you know, mental health, um, that he, that he needed the women um, to unwind, to relax. He was, he was, you know, stressed and depressed and that that was his way of coping with it and that nothing was going to stop him.
0: Well, you, you peripherally have written in this book about president Kennedy and about uh, quite a bit about J. Edgar Hoover. So um, uh, Kennedy, who was a little bit older than King, but they're basically historical contemporaries obviously had some of the same issues. Yeah.
1: And um, nobody, uh, quite brought down. Nobody was sending tapes to his wife, the way the FBI was doing to King. And, um, you know, back then, you know, it, it was fairly common and and the media knew that many, many of our great leaders were, were womanizers and um, you know, hypocrites when it came to preaching their moral values and um, they didn't report on it and they didn't report on King either. But the, the big difference is that the president, President Kennedy, president Johnson, who both had their own um, affairs could have told the FBI to knock it off. I don't believe that they were powerless to stop J. Edgar Hoover. I know they were afraid of being exposed themselves. I know that they uh, feared J. Edgar Hoover, but I don't think that justifies it. I think that you could have said uh, quite reasonably to J. Edgar Hoover, um, this guy is an important ally. He's um, an important spokesman and leader of, an, of a huge segment of this population. We should be worried more about protecting him than, uh-huh. than trying to destroy him i I don't think that's being idealistic or unre- unreasonable on my part
0: it's very interesting when you think about how um, you know how that sort of the views of that kind of activity has evolved i mean uh, when Gary Hart had a girl in his lap that was the end of his career but the uh, access Hollywood tape did absolutely nothing to uh, derail the career of former president Trump. Um, it, it, it's just a fascinating uh, aspect of, of the story, I, I, I guess.
1: It is. And, um, you know, what, what, what makes it most interesting in King's case, I mean, it does tell us a lot about his character and about his marriage and, and the way he uh, lived and also how he led because he really um, neglected the, the potential of women as leaders in the movement. But I think the most important thing is the way that his, personal flaws were weaponized by the FBI and the impact that had not just on King and his life. Um, I mean, you could argue that it contributed to his assassination that created an environment in which people thought King was um, was an enemy, but it also deeply affected the outcome of the civil rights movement because the leadership was, was under fire, was questioned, was, they were, they were dividing leaders of the civil rights movement. And um, you know, the impact is, is almost too, great and too complicated to 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 really put a finger on
0: yeah i mean w- when you say that it was you know that john i mean you in your book you talk about how johnson was very close friends with hoover i don't think that was necessarily true with jfk although i think robert kennedy and hoover had worked together at some point right
1: yeah robert kennedy and hoover kind of hated each other actually <laughs> yeah and, and they distrusted hoover but um but lbj absolutely had a had a close friendship with him
0: so I, I guess it, it leads me to this question. How, how do you feel the assassinations of President Kennedy and, and also Malcolm X uh, affected the, the, not just King's life, but the crusade, the, the civil rights movement?
1: Well, when Kennedy was assassinated, King turned to his wife and said, this is what's going to happen to me. And he had already seen his house bombed and had been stabbed in the chest and was getting death threats almost constantly. So it was not uh, paranoia to think that, th- that he might face the same outcome. And I guess the question is, um, did that compel him to, to act more urgently on, on his itinerary, on his, on his goals, or did it create such drama and stress in his life that he, became less effective. Uh, we can't really say, but we do know that, you know, he had to wake up every day and every time he took a, took a stage to speak anywhere and they didn't have, you know, metal detectors and, um, he never had bodyguards. He had to know that this was the day that somebody could just take him out with a bullet at any moment. And, and that's how he lived with that and kept going every day is is hard for me to imagine.
0: You talk in your book about the famous, I have a dream speech day. And, and you, you, you you spent some time talking about the park ranger who became a secret service agent, I guess you would say he felt compelled uh, to protect King. Did you yeah. talk to this guy personally? Did, did yeah. You- I
1: love this story. Gunny Gundrum is a, is, is a wonderful guy. And it just, you know, I was watching the video for the millionth time and it occurred to me that this white, park ranger kept sticking his hand in front of king to adjust the microphone and i thought it it bothered me like what was he thinking why was he doing that (laughs) and i said who is that guy and yeah I, i googled him and found that his hometown paper had written a story about him and i called him up um and said, what were you thinking sticking your hand in front of King when he was talking? He said, no, oh, I didn't do that. You know, I would never do that. I was very respectful. I was standing right by his side, making sure he was safe, but you know, I I, I wouldn't stick my hand in front of his face. And I said, go check it out on YouTube and call me back. <laughs> and, and he called me back and he said, Oh, wow. I can't believe I did that. But you know, now that I think about it and, and the story is beautiful because he's a white guy who grew up in like the Adirondacks and had never met a black person until he joined the military. And, he said watching King there that day and seeing the crowd respond to him moved him in a way he wasn't prepared for. And he felt like, I want to make sure everybody can hear him. And he's really short. And I'm not sure the microphone is positioned correctly. And then after he adjusted the microphone once, he said, I'm not sure they can really hear him. I mean, the microphone, maybe, maybe it should be a little higher after all. So he adjusted <laughs> it again. and um, And then, you know, he said that when the crowd you know, roared at the end of the speech and, and King turned away without even thinking about it, you know, impulsively, he threw himself in front of King and raised his hands as if to say, quiet down, you know, <laughs> settle down because he was worried that like this was an important man and, and he needs to be protected. And and I love that. I mean, it's, it's really, it's an act of love in in the most, you know, religious and spiritual sense. You know, it's, it's exactly what King talked about when he talked about, um the the beloved community. Um, you know, Gunny became a part of that beloved community that
0: day. It takes the power of his speech and uh you know, individualizes it into this one guy.
1: Yeah. And I i told the chapter, um, it was hard to decide how to tell that chapter, how to write that that chapter, because in some ways it's the most uh, powerful moment of King's career. So I decided to shift the story, shift the lens a little bit away from King and to introduce two other characters. One was Gunny and one was Francine Yeager, this teenage girl from the south side of Chicago who just got on a train at the last minute, put a change of underwear and two bottles of Coke in her backpack and told her parents she was going to Chicago I mean going to d c and uh and and went there, and her life was changed by hearing King speak, so I wove those three stories together in that chapter in a way that i I really enjoyed
0: oh it's well written exciting chapter in the in the book, and of course it's like you said, it's the one of the moments that everybody is going to want to relive um but by the way, what did Bob Dylan sing that day? Do you know?
1: Oh, I don't remember what song he' sang I want to say. Oh, man, you stumped me. I got go right,
0: to go look it up. All right, I, w- I want to know as a, as a Dylan fan, did Dylan ever encounter Dr. King that day? Do you know? Did they talk?
1: No, I don't think they did. And I tried to reach Dylan. I tried to reach Joan Baez, um, Peter Yarrow, some of the people who they, were there that day, and none of them wanted to talk to me, um, which was frustrating because I, 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 but, you know, um, they've probably been interviewed about it too many times, I guess.
0: Uh, Did you encounter any resistance to this biography because you are not African-American?
1: Really um, none, to be honest. I I was really pleasantly surprised. You know, I, I went in very uh, humbly and respectfully and asked King's closest friends and associates, if they would help me, if they would support this idea, if they thought it was time for a new King biography and, and every single one of them, except Diane Nash uh, here in Chicago, Every single one of them said yes. They, they thought it was an important uh, project. And then I went to African American scholars and asked them the same question. You know, why has it been so long since the last King biography? It's 40 years. Yeah. And would they help me if I, if I set out to, to, to try to do this? And every single person I called said yes. And they, they, and they formed this great community of people who really helped me get this done. And, um, I, I, I was. Really pleasantly surprised and thrilled, you know that that I had so much support for the idea, and I think the I think it was because people felt like King's story needed to be told again, and um and I and um there's no perfect person to do it, but I think I
0: I convinced them that I was going to work hard enough to try to do it right. Uh, how did your Ali book uh, kind of lead to that? I mean, w- you say that there hadn't been a, a biography of King, which is so true, but there have been terms of Ali books. What made you write about Ali, and how did that kind of lead you in this direction?
1: Well, there really hadn't been a serious King by, bi- I mean Ali biography. There had been a lot of really great books that took on pieces of his life, but nobody had done the full, what I like to call the presidential style biography—the mm-hmm. one that treats him as a, as a as a massively important historical figure that interviews everybody, that puts it in historical context. Because the books that were written about Ali, many of them were written while he was still active like Norman Mailer. And then, um, you know, David Remnick's book, which was terrific, only covered the early years of his career. as kind of like the making of Muhammad Ali. And there was an oral history, uh, but nobody had done the complete biography yet. So when I realized that, that I had an opportunity to write the big Ali biography, I just felt like it was a, an incredible g- gift to have that opportunity. And along the way, I began meeting people who knew King as well, because King and Ali met a couple times. So I found myself asking Dick Gregory, uh, about Ali and then saying, so what about King? What was he like? You know, just out of curiosity. Um, and Harry Belafonte, Jesse Jackson, Andrew Young, these were people I interviewed for the Ali book first. And then I, it slowly dawned on me that I really should be asking them about King as well. And that when I finished Ali, I started calling them back and saying, can I come interview you again and talk some more about King? And they were all up for it. So it, it was really, um, it was almost like a two-part uh mm-hmm. Journey for me uh the the books really you know were connected
0: yeah yeah uh I, I can definitely see the connection we're uh we're talking with Jonathan I and he's the author of a brand new book called king a life uh the I have a dream speech kind of had a, a effect i'm not going to say negative effect necessarily on king, but um it, it it maybe made it more difficult for him to speak in the future because. You know, everybody wanted him to give the I have a dream speech every time or he felt that that was true.
1: Yeah. Andy Young said that to me, that he felt this pressure every time out to give the most memorable speech of everyone's life to every audience he ever spoke to. Because (laughs) he was known as Mr. I have a dream. And it happened right after the speech. I mean, even as he left the, 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 uh, the, the, the monument, left the Lincoln Memorial and went over to the White House to talk to John F. Kennedy, he walks in the door and Kennedy shouts, I have a dream. (laughs) <laughs> so like, it, it's, it's, it's immediate. And um, that's, that's a lot of pressure, but you know, the good news is that King loved speaking. I think he was happiest when he was in front of a podium behind a podium or a um, in the pulpit. I think he really just loved it. it. Was You know, like a musician, you know, blowing his horn. Um, that's when he was really in the groove and really felt like he was connecting with people. And, you know, he, he, he gave, hundreds of speeches every year that was the main way that he raised money for his organization the scl and um they really relied on him to travel and to and to give speeches and and he didn't mind it he really enjoyed
0: it you do a really great job of describing the cadence of his voice and you use the uh analogy of a uh, a tail on a kite um uh, to make it soar the way he uh you i mean I think most people can hear it in their heads because it's been played so many times, but a uh, year analysis of it was like writing about jazz.
1: Yeah. I think that there are a lot of similarities. He borrowed a lot, you know, jazz musicians borrow from other jazz musicians. They borrow from other forms. They borrow from opera, from classical music and they, they make it their own by improvising as they go. Um, and, and, and that's very much what King did. He was a great improviser. He was a great um, quilter um he he borrowed heavily from others but made it uniquely his own and you know one of the challenges of writing is that you can never convey that sound on the printed page you can never capture the majesty and the roar and the the timber of his voice um i'm certainly not a good enough writer to to match his his abilities so um uh, I tried to do the best I could with some analogies and some metaphors and le- also just to show you how the, what kind of response he got because it's that that uh, people just were hypnotized.
0: He had given at least a, p- a form of that speech before. Yeah, a
1: couple times. Um most recently in Detroit um at what at that point was the largest mar- march um largest assembly of black protesters in American history and um And so he'd practiced it a few times. And, you know, uh, that day, August 28th, 1963 in Washington, uh, he was the last speaker of the day and the media were were ready to go, ready to go file their stories. And King had given them his printed remarks in advance. So they knew what he was going to say. It was a fairly wonky speech. It was full of, you know, um, hard hitting um, policy stuff, but it wasn't a soaring a piece of rhetoric it was not poetry at all it was it was really policy oriented and then when he got done and he only had 10 minutes to speak a lot of to him he just decided that he was going to go beyond his printed remarks and looked up from his paper and said and i'm here today because i have a dream and then he went into the the part that he had given several times and and that's when he was happiest and that's what he did best you know it, it, he took the audience to church um and and that of course is the part that people remember best because it was the most emotional part he was speaking from from the heart and not from the printed page
0: and he didn't speak for very long it wasn't a very
1: long speech no the whole speech is only something like 1500 words it's it's really short and um it's but it's the it's the message it's it's the, the the his ability to talk about the dream which is an, you know the american dream is a almost a you know almost a foundational concept in america uh, but to 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 connect that to slavery and, and 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 reconstruction to talk about the dream having been denied for so long but also to remind people that that's what black people were here for they weren't trying to tear down american society they weren't here to bash it to overthrow it they were trying to join it They wanted to share the American dream. And what could be more patriotic than that? Um, That's what made it so inspiring,
0: I think. Do do you intend your book to uh, be an inspiring document or just a historical um, accounting?
1: No, I do think it should be inspiring. I think King's life is inspiring. If we listen to his words, if we see his true courage, if we understand that he, despite the pain, the suffering... Um, the doubt, despite all of that, he never lost hope in us. Um, It should be inspiring. Um, And I think that's a a big part of why I wrote it. I want him to still have the power to inspire us. Um, When we turn him into Mr. I have a dream and content of our character, we flatten him and water him down. He he doesn't have that ability to inspire us anymore.
0: When Ali, uh, when Muhammad Ali decided to resist the draft, he gave up the, you know, the two greatest years or three greatest years of his potential as an earner. I mean, millions of dollars, as well as, I mean, a, a boxer only has so many years in which to be great. Uh, amazingly, Ali extended that, you know, well beyond what was. Sadly, well, yeah. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> but, um but, you know, he, he made a huge sacrifice. And it, it seems to me that when, um when, king wins the nobel prize which is a great honor that he was locked in at that point that he never was going to be a teacher or a local preacher or anything it was it was never going to be an end to what he was doing
1: no and that's um so much to his credit and shows you his courage and his level of commitment because i think a, a lot of people would have been tempted to say i'm going to start an institute and I'm going to lead a think tank. I'm going to, you know, or I'm going to run for office, or I'm going to um, go off and write a book about how brilliant I am, and all the lessons I have to teach the world. And, and he didn't, you know, he donated all the money from the Nobel Prize to the SCLC and to a couple other organizations, I think the NAACP got some of it. And he doubled down, he said, I actually have a responsibility now to do more. Um, to fight not just for civil rights in America, but to talk about income inequality, to talk about war, um, and and Coretta, you know, much to her credit, was right there with him, saying, you know, this award means we have a greater responsibility than ever. Not not you have a greater responsibility. We have a greater responsibility than ever, and and that's one of the things I admire most about King. Um, every time that he could have stepped back, um, and he might have said, "Look, the government's not making this any easier for me." The FBI's is dogging me. Uh, I'm, I'm not even as effective as I can't be as effective as I want to be under these conditions. It's time for me to let someone else lead. And I will continue to advise and consult and write and teach. Um, that would have been reasonable. He would not have been mocked for that. Um, but he, his, his conscience would not allow him to do that. And his, his, his religious, uh, beliefs would not allow him to do
0: that. So in that way, that's the moment that, you know, Ali, Shares with him, right? I mean, Ali could just have said, "Okay, fine," knowing that you know he they would never send him to Vietnam. He would give you know a couple right. of exhibition boxing matches and go on to his, with his career.
1: Yeah, I'll entertain the troops, um, and uh, we, we're we're all good, and I'll 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 continue to criticize you know the, the military if I want to. Uh, I'll, but uh, you know we'll compromise. But Ali wouldn't compromise. He said he would face a firing squad before he. Uh, before he compromised. And again, it was his religious beliefs. I think this is um, uh, uh, one of the other things that my book has in these two books have in common is that these are both people who are are the rare examples of people who who live up to their religious beliefs, who really try to walk the walk.
0: Was there um, within the the organization that King led, was there jealousy? Um, You know, when King got the Nobel prize King got the, Yeah.
1: Well, his best friend, Ralph Abernathy was always jealous and they were great dear friends, but Abernathy felt like it could have been him just as easily. And that he was also, he was like the Lou Gehrig to the, to Martin Luther King's (laughs) Babe Ruth that he was, he was driving in just as many runs, hitting just as many home runs, but not getting any of the attention for it. And that's how he felt. And that's why, you know, actually he, um he, he, he didn't want to, when he found out he was, there wasn't a limousine for him to take him to Nobel Prize ceremony, he got really angry and, and, and King um, went out and bought him a, a watch, um, not, not quite the same watch that he got for winning the Nobel Prize. But, uh, you know, I think as friends, King recognized that this was, a, this was a difficult situation and Abernathy's not the only one who was jealous, you know, other younger leaders of the movement thought he was too conservative, thought King, they called him de laud like the, like as if he were the lord himself as if he was so high and mighty uh he was mocked for that and you know he could never be progressive or radical enough for some of the younger members of the movement um but that's part of the problem that just comes with being in a position of power you're always going to have people who are jealous or resentful or um think you're not enough one you're not liberal enough or you're not conservative enough either way
0: um, you know people always think when when people meet me and know that I'm Jewish, they assume that I know all Jews in the world. <laughs> oh, I have a friend who's Jewish in New York. You know? <laughs> um, it, it, it's it was really interesting to know that Martin Luther King and Malcolm X met just once, just briefly. Yeah, you you, you have this moment in the book where they just meet in passing. What what was that moment like?
1: Yeah, it was only five minutes in, in, in the halls of Congress. They were both there to testify on civil rights legislation and and um they, they, they appeared to be smiling, they appeared to get along nicely, but it was a very complicated relationship. It's it's shocking to think that they never met beyond that five minutes because they were constantly talking about each other, and Malcolm was constantly criticizing King. It was really to his advantage to criticize King because as I said, um, a lot of people thought King was too conservative, and Malcolm took advantage of that, called King and Uncle Tom, and Reverend Dr. Chickenwing, Wing, uh, his, his nonviolence and said, you know, Black people have turned the, turned the cheek too many times, um, and um, at the same time, I think Malcolm actually respected King, and and at one point, he went to Selma hoping to meet King, and King was in jail when he got there, and he, he said to Coretta, please let your husband know that I'm... I, I, I'm present by presenting this more radical alternative. I've, I'm hope that I make it easier for Dr. King to do his work. That people might be more inclined to listen to him, to deal with him, because I'm the alternative. So he was well aware, I think, of of that, and I think King knew it too. And I think King actually, especially later in in his life, um, recognized that he and Malcolm had a lot in common.
0: And wouldn't it have been nice if they had had a televised debate or something like that? Would have been great.
1: Yeah, that would have been really exciting. Um would have been
0: fascinating to see those two minds um, go at it. Well, we, we, we talked a little bit about uh, J. Edgar Hoover and his vendetta against King. I guess vendetta is probably a good word. Um, why did um, Hoover, I mean, was Hoover a racist? Why did Hoover hate King so much? And why did he see King as such a danger? Well, he was a racist. Let's be clear
1: about that. Um, he he grew up in a racist environment. He uh, was part of a a racist uh, fraternity and he um, had a career of fighting to maintain the white status quo, the white Christian nationalist power structure. Um, And I think he saw that as his job. And when he saw King emerging as a a powerful figure, um, winning the first Times Man of the Year, that offended him. And then King had the nerve to criticize the FBI, to say that they were doing a disservice by not hiring black agents in the South to protect civil rights workers and to protect black citizens who were being you know, killed by the KKK. King was absolutely right about that, but you, you don't criticize Jacob for he was very sensitive about any kind of criticism, especially coming from a, from a black person. Oh, forget it. So um, Hoover becomes obsessed with with King and, begins investigating him and and is told by his um, agents that King is associating with former communists. And that's enough to get Hoover to seek authorization for wiretaps that Kennedy administration, RFK in particular, signs off on the wiretaps. They begin listening to King's phone calls and they see that he's, yes, he is associating with former communists, but he's not the least bit interested in communism. He's, if anything, he's, you know, he's fighting to help black people join the American democracy. And um, the, if, As King said over and over, if anybody um, should have been tempted to to sign up uh, with the Communist Party, it would be black Americans. But here we are trying to get the right to vote, trying to get the right to be treated as full citizens. Um, But at the same time, so as as Hoover realizes that he's not that there's no dirt um, on King when it comes to communism, Hoover hears uh, the FBI hears King on the phone with women other than Coretta. And this becomes their obsession now. Uh, because he's um, a hypocrite, he's 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 not um, the holy uh, preacher man that he claims to be, and Hoover sets out to try to destroy King's reputation, and and in part it's because he's he's hostile toward King individually, but it's also because he's he's out to damage and divide the civil rights movement. He wants to maintain the status quo. With
0: with the tacit approval of the various administrations under which he worked
1: yeah not so tacit i mean rfk signs off Mm -hmm. on the warrants and then lbj um is being updated on the the information coming in on these wiretaps sometimes several times a week getting direct memos from hoover to the to the white house Um, and lbj seems to be enjoying it seems to be enjoying the gossip um of course he loves having dirt on on his um on his, I was say rivals. I don't think King is a rival. I think he's one of his allies, but nevertheless, he seems to enjoy having dirt on him. But it's um, it's worse than that. I think I think LBJ is, is not just a voyeur. He's 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 complicit in this. He's encouraging it.
0: Well, LBJ is many things, including a colossal liar, but he does seem to have genuine affection for uh, King in the little transcript of their conversation that you hear. I mean, I guess he could be an insincere person, but he sounds insincere. <laughs>
1: In the first couple of phone calls, I think it's sincere. And I think um he does recognize that King is an important ally, but that changes. And when King begins to um speak out against the Vietnam War, I think he he's he no longer sees him as an ally. He sees him as somebody who's who's trying to take down um the president, who's who's out to undermine him, who's perhaps, you know, hoping to see Bobby Kennedy run against him. And I think that's LBJ's biggest fear, and he sees King as a as a potential threat. So that, that changes for sure.
0: The uh, to to what degree do you think um, that's a, f- a, a, a the part of King's life where he moves north and moves out from simply the civil rights movement? Um, that's an important part of your story, and uh, what, what effect does that have on King's life, other than ending it?
1: <laughs> well, this connects again to the thing i was talking about earlier king feels compelled to follow his beliefs his religious beliefs his moral his philosophical beliefs um and not do the pragmatic thing because his advisors almost to the one are saying stay in the south stick to birmingham montgomery stick to uh, mississippi that's where you're most effective if we can just keep registering more black voters and we know how to do that We'll tip the balance of power. We'll we'll get more black people. We'll get more of our candidates elected to key offices. We'll control Congress. We'll control the state houses. That's your best play. And King says, "I can't do it. I've, I've got to call." If, 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 if they're just as racist in Chicago, they're just as racist in Philadelphia as they are in the South. And the people are suffering. You know, the, the, the cities are segregated. The schools are segregated. Hiring is unfair. Housing is segregated. I've got to call it out. I've got to attack where, any, where, I, where I see wrong. It's, it's not about choosing the easiest battles. It's about you it should be choosing the hardest battles. And and so King goes to Chicago and and moves in um, to a, to a, you know derelict apartment on the west side and 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 has a, a rough time of it. He's treated terribly in Chicago. He's he's hit in the head with a brick. Um, he leaves there saying that the the racists in Chicago could teach. Alabamans and Mississippians a thing or two, and um, he negotiates um, a, a, a package of, of reforms with Mayor Daley, and then Daley walks away from them as soon as King leaves town. So people say that King accomplished nothing there. Um, I I wouldn't agree. I would say that the city accomplished nothing. The city you know had an opportunity to make change and, and chose not to. But um, the same thing happens with Vietnam. You know his advisors tell him you know it's a mistake. You're gonna you're gonna lose support. Um, you're going to lose uh, um, your relationship with LBJ uh, funders. And then our, 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 liberal white funders are going to, are going to turn against us. But King again says, I, I've got no choice. Yeah. You know, this is what I'm, what I'm, what the Bible tells us to do. And is this is one phone call. Um, and we have a transcript of it because the FBI is taping it where he's talking to one of his best friends. And his friend says, I think that Vietnam speech he made was a mistake. You know, it doesn't sound like you. And it's just going to really hurt the cause. And King is just flabbergasted. He says, you know, don't you know me? Don't you understand who I am? It, it might've been politically wrong, but it wasn't morally wrong. And that's what I'm doing. That's what I, that's who I am. And it's, it's just sad to think that he has to explain himself even to his friends at that point.
0: Do you think that he suffered from clinical depression? I mean, I know you're not a doctor, but, oh, maybe you are, I don't know. No, I'm not. <laughs> um, but I, I think he probably did. Um,
1: his friends did. Jesse Jackson said that explicitly. Um, he was certainly, you know, troubled. Um, he was hospitalized numerous times for what he called uh, exhaustion. Coretta referred to it at, at times as depression. Uh, he was even in the hospital when he got the news about the Nobel Peace Prize, um, and he said he thought he was dreaming it when the when the phone call came because he'd been heavily sedated um, with sleeping pills. So um, I think it's it's just another sign of of how human he was, and that. Um, how, how much he struggled, even in the, at the moments of his greatest glory, he was, he was struggling personally.
0: You spend some time in the book uh, talking about women in the civil rights movement and how important they were. Um, and I guess it's part of the time in which King lived that the contributions of women were diminished and not um, uh, exalted the way they should have been um What what, what was his attitude about that?
1: It's another one of his flaws, I'm afraid, because, you know, you see it early on. You know, he falls in love with Coretta in part because she's an activist, because she's got more experience as an activist than he does at that point in their lives. And yet he tells her that, you know, her job is to stay home and raise the kids. And it's not just Coretta. uh, And it's not just, you know, early in their marriage. It's throughout his entire career. Um, He's he's. He's neglecting and even sometimes, you know, rejecting the contributions of women, and you know, women like Ella Baker and Septima Clark are great organizers. They're out in the field. They're building networks. They're educating voters. They're proving that they know how to organize, and yet they have no chance of rising to to positions of of responsibility in in King's organization because King and the other, you know, leaders um, tend to be uh, Baptist preachers who have uh, been raised and trained in this very sexist environment and have always believed that, you know, women's place is either at home or at the church organ um, and Mm -hmm. that um, there's, there's really no place for them in the positions of leadership. And it's one of King's great blind spots because, you know, he is truly one of our great fighters for equality, but he fails to recognize the equality of, you know, half of the planet, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess it's no surprise that we had an African-American president, male, before we've had a female president of any race.
1: Yeah, some of that sexism uh, is is, is widespread.
0: What, what did you learn about James Earl Ray?
1: Not much, to be honest. And I didn't spend a whole lot of time there. Um, my strong belief is that he acted alone. He thought it would be a good idea that he would you know, he he would make him a hero to, to kill the nation's most um, troublemaking black man. And that the FBI created those conditions, knowingly created those conditions, um, knowingly set out to destroy King's reputation. And certainly they were aware that the, one of the possibilities when you do that is that a, a kook decides to take matters into his own hands. Um, I know some people are not satisfied with that. They think there was a conspiracy. I think King, King's children to this day, I still believe there was a conspiracy and some of the people I really respect um, friends of Kings um, have come to the same conclusion. They don't think that this was an accident, but I couldn't find any evidence to support that, that, that changed um, the, 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 the conclusions that others have reached.
0: Well, I guess just as with president Kennedy or Robert Kennedy, it's hard to believe that something so great could be destroyed by such a small insignificant person. Well,
1: that's true. It's it's really one of the sad pieces of history is the the power that an assassin has to change history and um we can only imagine what king might have done and how the nation might look different if he'd lived.
0: Um and how much longer your book would have been. It's a <laughs> you know um it's it, it, it it's it, it is a massive undertaking this book. And how long did you work on it?
1: This was six years more or less.
0: Yeah. And um and yet it flies by and I was just uh, got to the end like, oh, no, it's over.
1: Uh, thanks. I'm I mean, good not good.
0: only the the book is over, but the life that, you know, you were describing so beautifully was over. And it's a, it's, a, it's really a well done book and congratulations on it. Uh, Jonathan Ige, the book is called King a Life. And although we've talked for a long time, we haven't even scratched the surface of all the stuff that's in this book. Uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us on from the bookshelf. Thank you, Gary. Jonathan Eig, his new book, is called King Alive. Life. I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Last week, police in New York arrested Rex Herman, who was charged with murder in the killings of three women and named a prime suspect in the death of a fourth. These killings occurred more than a decade ago. At the time of the discovery of the women's bodies on a beach in Long Island, the police labeled the women prostitutes and made solving their murders a low priority. The murders were the subject of a book by investigative journalist Robert Kolker called Lost Girls. I spoke with Robert Kolker about the case in 2014. Yeah, I read an article in a recent issue of Rolling Stone about this Duke University student, maybe you saw it, who's paying her tuition by performing in pornographic videos. And the community of the university learned this and they shunned her. And it's like this horrible thing for her. And it made me think of the biographies that uh, make up a good deal of lost girls. Uh, our society, we create these employment opportunities for women, I guess, and all through history we have. And then is horrified when real people are involved in them. And, uh, you know, it's kind of an old story. It reminded me of the uh, horror films where... Uh, there's always a girl who does something immoral, like kissing a boy in the parked car or something that leads to her death at the hands of the blob or whatever it is. Hate.
2: I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, and those are associations, which I, I, I so rarely hear but really apply in this case. Um, you know, the serial killers themselves, when they're interviewed, have said that they try to select victims like prostitutes because they think no one will care about what happened to them. Um, that they'll have no families, and I think if there's something new that Lost Girls has to offer, it's a look at the face of prostitution today, which is slightly different from what it was several years ago. Uh, the internet has lowered the barrier or changed the barrier to entry to the job, so that the women who are involved uh, look somewhat more like you know everyday people in America. They they no longer are are somehow faceless or have no identity. Um, uh, you know, the fact that they had no identity is indeed a terrible tragedy. But you know, the surprise of lost girls is that these women are people you might recognize.
0: Right, they're not. They're not standing on a street corner with gigantic high heel shoes and tight red dress and smoking a cigarette or whatever.
2: Exactly. Now, you know, the, it's a narrative book, a narrative nonfiction book, and, a, and in its way, it's a true crime book. But it also you know, is talking about a social trend. You know, there was a time a few years ago where people thought that the internet was going to change sex work forever, that it was going to professionalize it, that you wouldn't need a pimp anymore or an escort service. And so you could be a solo practitioner just working on the internet and vetting your clients. But for these women, at least, they were considered every bit as vulnerable by the killer and, and they were not, their disappearances were not taken seriously by the police. And you know, their families were basically helpless when they went missing.
0: And they weren't taken seriously because they were prostitutes. Exactly. Which is baffling, because if a woman disappears, she's disappeared, right?
2: Right. It's it's about class, and it's, a, it's about not just how the police view prostitution, but about how our entire society views prostitution. It's very much along the lines of what you said at the beginning of the segment. You have... A society where that creates the opportunities for these women but then we don't really want to know much about them and we blame them when things go wrong Uh, lost girls has uh, interviews with the police who investigated these crimes it's still an unsolved case and yet the chief of detectives at the time who I talked to started blaming the victims in the middle of the interview he said most of these women are killed because they were greedy
0: what, what what were they doing that was greedy? I mean, they were just doing their job.
2: That's true. And in fact, it's the job that is so interesting, at least the way it's changed. I, I didn't know much about how prostitution had changed before I looked into this. I uh, remarked at the time that a view of these women's lives was a view at a certain segment of America where opportunities are drying up, where for some of these women, it's either this or working at the Dunkin' Donuts or the Walmart that, you know, generations earlier, their parents or grandparents had union jobs that, you know, offered some sense of a future. But for these women, it was the money and the promise of social mobility that it offered them that drew them into escort work. Um, They were young, they were in their 20s. They weren't necessarily trafficked or, you know, coerced into the Life And they didn't consider it a life choice. They considered it a way to make money a few days a week here and there.
0: And how, what role did drugs play in them?
2: Well, you know, I'm as much of a victim of these stereotypes as anyone else. When I, when I first learned that four women were found, you know, the remains of four women were found on the beach in Long Island and that they were most likely escorts, I thought we would never learn who these women were. And I thought that they were perhaps lost souls even before they went missing, that they, were, they must have gotten into it for the drugs. But what I learned as I found out about the five women I write about in Lost Girls is that if there are substance abuse issues, they come later, and that it's the money they become addicted to first. So you start by taking, you know, working part-time, like taking a weekend and going down to make a lot of money, and then you are suddenly making enough in one, more in one night than what your friends are making in two or three weeks. And that kind of money becomes addictive. And then you work harder and you hide it more from more people. And the lifestyle becomes harder to sustain and you numb yourself and you self-medicate or you take drugs to work harder or you take drugs because your clients insist you take drugs and then it becomes part and parcel of your life.
0: Um, We're talking with Robert Kolka and his book is called Lost Girls, An Unsolved American Mystery. Has there been any updates since you've published your book?
2: Well... Uh, the book leaves things open-ended, obviously. It talks a lot about the final moments of Shannon Gilbert's life, where she, you know, she's the first person, the one whose disappearance leads to the discovery of the others. Yes. It's, a, um, it's a very curious set of circumstances in which she runs from a client's house in a small beachfront community in Long Island, and she pounds on doors screaming for help, and she calls 911, something very unusual for an, a prostitute to do. And she stays on the phone with 911 for 23 minutes, and she tells them that someone is trying to kill her. And yet, by the time the police arrive, she's completely disappeared, and it's not clear to the police that uh, anything has happened at all because they don't connect the 911 call with her disappearance. They're just responding to a neighbor's 911 call.
0: Well, what, why didn't anyone respond to her 911 call? I mean, could, they couldn't tell on the phone that she was a prostitute.
2: What they couldn't tell was where she was. Um she called and the county answered and they asked where she were and she where she was and she didn't know so she gave one landmark jones beach which is a big public beach here in new york right and um that put that switched her over to the state police and then the state police kept her on the phone from there but couldn't locate her um it's unclear what kind of technological capability they had to find her with her cell phone one of the recurring themes in lost girls is how police work is very unlike CSI and things don't happen overnight <laughs> and yeah. sometimes don't happen at all.
0: I guess that's a, that's, that's a whole another side of it. But yeah, I mean, we, we now think that police can just do anything and just find anybody. and
2: That's right. You know, Cause that's how, that's how they do it on the TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so you, you asked it, what's new? And I guess what's new is that the police have nothing or at least are coming forward with nothing. Um, you know, the they have become more defensive since Lost Girls have come out, came out, and they insist now that Shannon Gilbert isn't even a murder victim, that her death was somehow accidental, that she died of hysteria, which is almost a Victorian notion. And, uh, and that, you know, it's just blind luck that her death led to the discovery of four women just like her along the same highway in Long Island. And then uh, now people are seizing on any other bits of evidence that might have been overlooked, trying to Think of it as the key. They're looking at at uh, dolls that were left at the memorial sites of the women, thinking that it might be more than just a little prank or uh, or perhaps a you know a tribute left by somebody who was sympathetic to them. They think maybe it was the killer. They look at everybody's trying to connect the case to another case of missing prostitutes in Atlantic City. Um, the more you look, the more associations you can find because this is in some ways a story as old as jack the ripper Mm -hmm. um you know it's prostitutes who get targeted and and you know there are some terrible cases out there in detroit and montreal and other places
0: well robert colker do you think prostitution should be legalized is that one of the things that you find yourself discussing since you've written lost girls
2: I get asked that a lot, and I, I tried to keep an open mind while I was writing the book, and I didn't want the book to turn into a policy book or a, or an advocacy book in that way. Um, what I've come away with now that the the writing is finished is, um, I, I'm convinced that legalization would probably just you know lead to many uh, you know negative circumstances that it would. Um, it would sort of provide cover to human traffickers who are bringing in underage people in a way that is undesirable but what I really have become an advocate for is destigmatization I think that there's a lot of you know shaming that goes on and a lot of stigmatization that goes on with prostitutes not just by the police but by all of society so that we treat them as criminals and maybe they are technically behaving unlawfully but we treat them as criminals way out of proportion to the way other low-level offenders are treated. And,
0: Gambling, for instance.
2: Yeah, or even low-level pot dealers. Like if you're, if you're you know, not paying parking tickets, it, it, other, other crimes that where you perhaps aren't hurting anyone physically, but you are violating the law. But if you're a prostitute, forget about it. It's almost like you're subhuman. You aren't worthy of protection if you're in trouble. Your disappearances aren't taken seriously, and you know if you're being hassled by a pimp or an escort service, or if you feel like a client is causing you trouble, the last thing you'd ever want to do is call the police. And incidentally, that's what makes Lost Girls that incipient moment in Lost Girls where Shannon Gilbert calls the 911 and stays on the phone with them for 23 minutes. It's it's the last thing a prostitute would ever do is call 911 and stay on the phone with them. She must have been terrified of something. And the neighbors aren't saying what.
0: Robert Kolker, his book is called Lost Girls. It was revised in 2020. uh, And uh, he recently wrote an article about the arrest of Rex Herman in the case in the New York Times. (laughs) That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and we'll come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf, and she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.